Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you here today. I want to welcome everybody, whether you're here in person or watching online. It's good to have you with us. Well, I have to say, it's been a great week around here. Uh, we had a bunch of guys show up yesterday for our Man Up event, and there was a lot of fun stuff going on. We had bull riding, blacksmithing, archery, shooting ranges, and a bunch of meat, which was kind of a highlight for me. Uh, we also heard from several guys who challenged us to step up and be the men that God is calling us to be. So this was a great event. Uh, we also had a lot of people serve in two different projects that uh, I'll mention later. For the moment, though, I, I want to tell you uh, about what God is doing in Nepal, a kingdom update here. If you were here last Sunday in person, you know that Plum Creek partners with a ministry called Disciple Makers. Disciple Makers is doing things all over the world, but one of the things they do, they, they train young Nepali men to be evangelists who will go out into remote regions of Nepal, places where people know basically nothing about Jesus, and they plant churches out there. And Plum Creek gets to be a part of that effort in kind of a unique way. Uh, several months ago, we took up an offering that went to several different projects, and one of them was to buy a bunch of goats in Nepal. And this may sound strange, but here's the basic idea. These evangelists that I'm talking about, they're going into these remote regions, they're planting churches that aren't able to support them, so somehow they've got to support their families financially. And that's where the goats come in. I want to show you a little video here. You're looking at a goat farm that is run by our mission partner, Disciple Makers. And those evangelists will receive goats when they go out to plant churches. And Plum Creek is able to provide goats for three different evangelists who will be graduating from a ministry training center coming up here in October. And during that church planting phase, they'll be able to sell meat, uh, milk, and, and cheese, and, and young goats until the local church is able to support them. It's a great idea, and I love that we get to be a part of what God is doing in the world, a part of building His kingdom. So thank you for being a part of that. Well, I'm excited to get back to our sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. In this series, we're looking at what happens when ordinary people are completely transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And like we've said the last couple of weeks, this idea of the Holy Spirit can be kind of confusing. And for the moment, I'll just give you three simple things that we learn about the Holy Spirit from the Bible. Number one, the Holy Spirit is God. He's not an it. He's a person, the third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Here's a second thing we learn from the Bible. The Holy Spirit lives or dwells within every true follower of Jesus. And this is amazing when you think about it. If you have given your life to Christ, you have the power of God Himself living inside you. It kind of blows your mind. I'll give you a third thing that we learn from the Bible. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to become more like Jesus. And that third point is really the focus of this series. 
Every follower of Christ should be going through this transformation of becoming more like Jesus. People should see that from a, different, from a distance. We should be changing. We should resemble Jesus more and more over time. But let's be honest, we don't always see that, do we? Some people claim to be Christians, but we don't see this transformation taking place. And I don't want to name any names here, but I'm confident we can think of somebody who says they're a Christian, but we're not seeing that happen. They don't remind us very much of Jesus. However, the Bible makes it very clear. This is supposed to be happening. Paul explains this process in Galatians chapter 5, but Jesus also talks about it in John chapter 15. And I love this passage because Jesus helps us understand what's going on with a metaphor. He was great with this kind of thing. And he uses a metaphor about a grapevine. I want to read this. John chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't bear fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. So you see it, right? God the Father is like a gardener. Jesus is like a vine. And if you've given your life to Christ, you are a branch that's connected to the vine. So where does the Holy Spirit fit in this metaphor? Well, you could think of the Holy Spirit as the sap, this life-giving sap that flows from the vine into the branch, because the Holy Spirit is the, the power of God living within you. And with that in mind, look at what Jesus says in verse 5. He says, yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And this makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because if you walk up to a grapevine and rip off a branch and throw it on the ground, how many grapes will grow on that branch? A grand total of no grapes, right? That, that's what we see. As soon as the branch is disconnected from the vine, it is in the process of dying. It's not going to bear fruit. So the message is clear. When a follower of Jesus stays connected to the vine, then the Spirit will enable that person to bear fruit. And what kind of fruit are we talking about? Well, that's what Paul says in Galatians 5. He gives this list. He says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We should expect to see every one of these qualities, every one of these virtues growing in the life of every Christian. And we don't grow this fruit by trying really hard. The fruit grows when we let the Holy Spirit change us from the inside out. So every week during this series, we're focusing on one or two qualities from this list. Last week, we talked about love and kindness. Today, we'll talk a little about goodness, but we're really going to focus on joy. And i got to say, I've been looking forward to this all week. Because, you know, some sermons are, are kind of heavy. And don't get me wrong, we've got to deal with the heavy stuff. But every now and then, it's great to talk about something like joy. Because I think we could all use more joy in our lives, right? Well, we're going to start by looking at the meaning of this word. 
And I went back and, and I looked at the, the original Greek word that Paul uses in Galatians 5.22. The word is kara. And the definition is simply happiness, gladness, and joy. It's pretty simple, right? So think about it. In your life, can you remember a time when you experienced great happiness, great joy? I asked myself that question this week, and I thought of the obvious answers first. Our wedding day, the, the days when our three kids were born. But after I thought of those obvious answers, I was surprised by the next thing I thought of. I thought of a basketball game that I played in when I was in 11th grade. And before I tell you about this game, I need to give you a little background. First, I was the sixth man on our varsity basketball team. And uh, if you've ever seen me play, that little fact may surprise you. Because here's the second thing I need to let you know. Uh, I went to a very small Christian school. I mean, 17 in my graduating class, kind of small. So if, if you had a pulse, you would definitely make the team. If you were able to walk and chew gum at the same time, you might just be a starter. I didn't get to be a starter, but I did get to be the sixth man. So back to the game. I don't remember exactly who we played, uh, but I do remember the score was extremely close the entire game. And we went into overtime. Now, I had not scored a point in regulation, but for some reason, the coach put me in. And wonder of wonders, I scored three points in overtime, and we won the game. It was one of the great moments in the history of sports. And I'm telling you, our whole team ran out to center court. We were jumping up and down, hugging each other and yelling. And then a bunch of fans came down from the bleachers. We were hugging them too and yelling. And listen, that's a big deal for me. I'm not much of a hugger. But this night, this magical night in Florida several decades ago, I got to experience that amazing feeling of pure joy. But you know what? As it turns out, that night was the very pinnacle of my basketball career. My senior year, we didn't have any moment that came close to that. And since high school, I haven't accomplished much in the world of basketball. But that's how it goes, right? Joy will come for a moment, and it doesn't stick around. And sometimes it can be hard to find it again. So how does this relate to the joy that Paul talks about in Galatians 5? What does he mean here? Well, if we zoom out and look at the entire Bible, this theme of joy, it shows up all over the place. But biblical joy is different than what we normally think of as happiness or gladness. It's different because this Bible joy is a reality that doesn't change from day to day. It doesn't depend on our circumstances. Happiness is around when things are going well. Once those circumstances change, the happiness disappears. But this Bible kind of joy, the world can't give it to you. And the world can't take it away either because it comes from God. In Psalm 16, King David is speaking to God, and he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So where does joy come from? Real joy. 
It comes from being in the presence of God. And how does King David say it here? He says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. So I also looked up that word fullness, and this time it's a Hebrew word, sobah. And that word means abundantly and fully satisfied. And that's so different than the joy that we find in this world. This world's joy, it doesn't leave you satisfied. It always leaves you wanting more. You may have it for a moment, but it slips away. And why is that? Well, this world, this life, has a tendency to steal your joy. And that happens in, in lots of different ways, lots of scenarios. I, I thought of three different scenarios where that may happen. Here's the list. Number one, apart from God, we lose joy when bad things happen. Uh, I don't know, maybe your life is going great right now. And if that's true, I am happy for you. I sincerely am. But you need to brace yourself because bad things eventually happen to everyone. Lots of people in this room can attest to that. And when those bad things happen, when life knocks you down, your joy can disappear. It, it may seem impossible to hold on to it. But that's only one scenario where we can lose our joy. Here's a second one. Apart from, from God, we can also lose joy when good things don't happen. Maybe you do win that game in overtime, but nothing like that ever happens again. Or, or maybe you interview for that dream job and you really feel like you've got a chance to get it, but they hire somebody else. Or maybe you, you had this dream of, of a marriage and a family that you always wanted, but that dream never becomes a reality. When those good things don't happen, your joy can start to dry up. But I need to mention one more scenario. Apart from God, we lose joy when good things do happen, but they become empty. Imagine this scenario. Let's say that I got to my senior year of high school and every single basketball game went into overtime. And I scored three points and we won the game every time. So think about it. When that happens the 12th time, am I going to have the same level of joy that I had the first time? It's going to be good, but it's not going to be that good, is it? Sometimes we talk about this as the law of diminishing returns. Because if we go back to the same experience over and over again, hoping to find the same level of joy, we're going to be disappointed. In fact, if your big goal in life is pursuing this world's version of pleasure and joy, you're actually headed for big trouble. And why is that? Well, every good thing in life, every blessing comes from God. And when we pursue those good things and, and make them ultimate things, they become idols, false gods. And worshiping idols, man, that leads to death. So we can't pursue the blessings ahead of the blesser. Only God can give us true and lasting joy. So now that we've established that fact, uh, we need to ask a different question. How do we find this lasting joy? How does this fruit of the Spirit grow in our lives? Well, God's Word has a lot to say about this. In the time we have left, uh, I want to share four ways that the Holy Spirit can grow the fruit of joy in your life. And I'm confident that at least one of these areas will hit home for you. 
First, we find lasting joy when we experience God's grace through Jesus. This is the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus. It's what we see in Acts chapter 15, verse 5. In that verse, the apostle Peter said, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. So what is this grace and why is it such good news? Well, since we've been having fun with old words this morning, I'll I'll give you one more. Uh, This word grace here, the Greek word is charis. And the, the Greek word charis, it means the gift that brings joy. It's kind of cool, isn't it? And, and that, that word also sounds a little like the, the word I mentioned a minute, a minute ago. Remember? Kara. That's the word that means happiness, gladness, joy. So charis brings kara. It's kind of cool if you're into that sort of thing. But why does grace bring joy? Well, again, this is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And the good news starts with bad news. The bad news is that all of us have sinned. All of us have broken God's laws. And because of our sin, we all deserve punishment, death, and eternal separation from God. But that wasn't the end of the story. The good news is what we see in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. When Jesus went to the cross and he sacrificed his life, he paid the penalty. He paid the penalty that you deserve to pay. And he offers this sacrifice as a gift to say, your penalty is paid. You can be forgiven. It's a gift that brings joy if you receive it. And so we see Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2, We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And we express that faith in several ways. We we believe that Jesus is who he said he is, who the Bible says he is. We also turn away from our old sinful life. We, We also declare or confess that Jesus is now my Lord and my Master and my Savior. And we're also baptized into Christ dying to the old life, being buried, and rising up to live a new life. It's an amazing thing. Once you experience this grace, you can be confident that you are 100% forgiven. Your sins are canceled out. You will live forever with God in heaven. So you can see why this grace brings a true and lasting joy. Because you can know without a doubt that God not only loves me, He accepts me. That truth brings an unshakable joy. Here's a second way the Holy Spirit will grow this fruit in your life. We find lasting joy when we live for others instead of ourselves. And here's the intersection between joy and goodness. When we do good for others and we show God's love in a tangible way, we we not only bless the other person, we bring joy to ourselves. Uh, Proverbs eleven seventeen says it this way, those who are kind benefit themselves, but the cruel bring ruin on themselves. It's a really cool verse, isn't it? So goodness and joy are linked. The more good we do for others, the more blessed we are in return. I think most of us know this is true, but we don't always live like it, do we? 
The other day, I saw an ad for Starbucks, and this ad had a slogan with it, and I just thought it was funny. The slogan was, chase happy things. Chase happy things. So that slogan leads me to a question. Okay, Starbucks, what exactly are the happy things that I should be chasing? And the ad gave me several suggestions. I should be chasing a mocha chocolate crumble frappuccino. Or maybe I should chase a unicorn cake pop. What do you think? Is that a good strategy? Will I find happiness from a unicorn cake pop? Will I find any kind of joy that lasts longer than a couple of minutes? You know the answer to that. We don't find true happiness by chasing after so-called happy things. I heard a good quote from a preacher named Mike Bro. He said, as long as you are all about you, you will never be happy. And then he went on and he said, you want to be happy? Then throw a towel over your arm and go serve somebody. You know, that actually works. We have scientific evidence to prove that it works. A few years ago, the University of Chicago did a big study. Uh, they interviewed 27,000 random people who, who represent kind of a cross-section of America. And they asked these people about their jobs. They said, how much satisfaction do you have in your work? And what they found was very interesting. They found that if you are in a job where you help someone or serve someone, you're a lot more likely to be satisfied compared to others in different professions. It's really not surprising, is it? As long as you are all about you, you will never be happy. But if you live for others instead of yourself, you find lasting joy. I saw that uh, this week on Wednesday night. I joined a group of volunteers that put together welcome packets for international students that are coming from all over the world to study at Northern Kentucky University. Uh, we mentioned this serving opportunity last Sunday, and it was really cool to see 40 people show up at the Life Center to put these packets together. And as we were working, I noticed people talking and laughing and just having a good time. It was fun to be together and, and do something good for these international students. And that's how it works. The more good you do for others, the more blessed you are in return. I know that also happened on Friday when a group from Plum Creek went down to eastern Kentucky to serve with Samaritan's Purse doing uh, flood relief. And I, I heard there were about 20 in that group. I also heard they worked very, very hard but they experience the same thing that we see in Proverbs eleven seventeen: Those who are kind benefit themselves. It's another way to find true and lasting joy. Here's a third way you can expect the Holy Spirit to grow this fruit. We find lasting joy when we share it with others. Have you ever noticed this? When you find something good, you want to share it. It's more fun that way. It's nowhere near as fun if you don't have uh, someone to share the good thing with. And this applies to the joy that we receive from the Holy Spirit. When you receive it, you want to share it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, one way you want to share that is with other followers of Jesus. And that's something that we're called to do as Christians. It reminds me of what Paul said to the Philippian church. 
He said, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So Paul is talking about the joy that comes when, when Christians are united in spirit, united in love. And this is what we should see in the church. We should be building the kinds of relationships where we share the joy of Christ with each other. Here at Plum Creek, one of the best ways to build these relationships is to get into a life group. And as it happens, the month of August is the best time in the whole year to get into a life group. Uh, One week from today, uh, registrations will begin, August 21st, and groups start meeting the week of September 11th. And if you're not familiar with life groups, these are small groups of about 8 to 12 people. Uh, They get together once a week to study the Bible, pray together, and share life together. I highly encourage you to join a group. The church is designed to be a community where we share the joy of Jesus with each other. However, we also need to share this joy with people who aren't followers of Jesus. This is the mission that God has given us. We've been called to go out and share the gospel, to invite others to find what we have found. And of course, we can't make anybody receive this gift that brings joy. But if you make yourself available to the Holy Spirit, He will use you to lead others to Jesus. And some of you have experienced that amazing privilege. God has used you to help someone find a life-changing connection, relationship with Jesus. You know, it's difficult to describe the kind of joy you have when you get to be a part of that. But I think Jesus described it best. It was another time when he used one of these cool metaphors. He said, think of a man who has a hundred sheep, but then one of those sheep gets lost. What does this man do? Well, he leaves the 99 because he cares for that lost sheep. He goes out to find the one. And then look what he says in Luke 15, verse 5. He says, And when he, that man, has found it, the sheep that was lost, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. See all the joy in these verses? I mean, the the man joyfully carries the sheep home on his shoulders. When when he gets home, he, he tells his friends and neighbors to rejoice or have joy. And then there's the reality that in heaven... There is great joy when a lost sinner comes home. When I hear this story, I don't think of sheep as much as I think of names and faces of people I have known whose lives have been changed by Jesus. I also think of my own kids, you know, getting to see them make the decision to follow Christ. It's, it's like John said, Third uh, John chapter 1, verse 4, he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Well, I have one more way that the Holy Spirit will give you this joy. We find lasting joy when we live in God's presence, both now and forever. 
You remember what we read from Psalm 16. What did David say? He said, God, in your presence there is fullness of joy. What difference does it make when you know without a doubt that God is with you? And what difference does it make when you know without a doubt that through the Holy Spirit, God is not only with you, He lives within you? Man, that makes all the difference in the world. You can think about it this way. Have you seen those videos where a soldier is serving overseas and then they come home and they surprise their son or their daughter just (laughs) arriving unannounced? And then what does that look like? Boy, when when that child sees their parent It's emotional, isn't it? I mean, they run together, they hug, that child is crying tears of joy. So does it make a difference for that child to be in the presence of their parent? Makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? I do want to be clear about something. Living in God's presence, that that doesn't mean that you have a problem-free life. It doesn't mean that you don't get sad. You actually do. This is one of the most important things that we need to understand about joy. And and let me ask a question here. What do you think is the opposite of joy? Well, I'll give you a hint. It's not sadness. Because sorrow can coexist with joy. And that, that may seem a little strange, but we see this in Jesus. The prophet Isaiah, he referred to Jesus as a man of grief and sorrow. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So when Jesus was here on earth, what was it that made him sad? Lots of things, really. He wept when his friend Lazarus died, and then on the night before he went to the cross, he was in agony over what he was about to go through. But I uh, am moved by another episode in the days leading up to the crucifixion. Jesus is coming to the city of Jerusalem, and he stops at a distance, and he looks at that city, and he thinks about all the people who have rejected him, and he feels this deep, deep sense of sorrow. We see the story in Luke 19, verse 41. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. You know, Jesus loved big. And because of his love, it was really tough to see someone turn away from God, reject that gift of grace And I know some of us can relate to those feelings because you have seen someone turn away from God and it hurts. You feel a sadness like that. So think about this. When you become a follower of Jesus, do you become a happier person? Well, in some ways, yes, because you have this lasting joy. But in another sense, Life in Christ opens you up to new kinds of sadness, like what we see here in Jesus. But we also know that Jesus was full of joy. So that's how it works today. A follower of Jesus can have this joy, but sometimes it's mingled with sadness. However, here's what we need to remember. Sooner or later, 
Sorrow is overwhelmed by the joy of God's presence if you are in Christ. And this is our deepest longing, our greatest desire, to be with Him. We don't exist for ourselves. We weren't created to pursue our own happiness. We were created for Him, to be with Him, to bring Him glory. And because of that purpose, we would never be satisfied outside of His presence, not fully satisfied. This is our greatest desire, to be with Him, to worship Him. All too often, though, we get mixed up and we think we want other things. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Does that quote hit close to home? Are you fooling about with drink or sex or ambition, trying to find real joy that way? If so, stop listening to Starbucks. Don't chase happy things. Don't pursue the blessings. Pursue the one who brings the blessings. Don't settle for anything less than God himself. You know, in one way, we do get to experience the joy of God's presence here and now because of the Holy Spirit living inside us. In another sense, though, we're still looking for something else. We're waiting for the day when we get to see Jesus face to face. I asked a question a minute ago, and I never answered it. So I need to come back to that. What is the opposite of joy? It's not sadness, but what is it? Well, a preacher named Tim Keller has a suggestion. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. And I agree, because if you don't have that hope that one day your, your deepest longing will be fulfilled, you will be with God forever, you'll see Jesus face to face, if you don't have that joy, man, you don't have what it takes to get through this life. You don't have anything solid to hold on to that will get you through those toughest days. But Jesus offers that hope. On the night before he died, Jesus was speaking with the disciples, and he said something powerful that really resonates with me. He said, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born to the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. For the disciples that night in Jerusalem, this was a promise about the resurrection. Yes, Jesus would die but he'd be back on Sunday. So these words were specifically addressed to those disciples, but they also apply to followers of Jesus here and now. Because in this world, our joy is mingled with grief. But one day, one day, if you are in Christ, you get to be with Jesus. And on that day, you will have a joy that no one, 
can take away. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you so much for everything we've talked about today, for the way that you love us, for the way that you want to use us for the work of your kingdom. And I thank you for this joy that we can have right now, but we can also look forward to that joy that will never disappear. Lord, I, I am confident that there's someone here right now, someone listening right now, who desperately needs this joy. And I pray that you would give it to them, that they would turn to you and find what they need in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.